made for autistic people, parents and carers of kids on the autism spectrum. This is a different brilliant with Orion Kelly. No two autistic people are the same. Open conversations that inform and engage world a better place for autistic An Aspect people. podcast focusing on the strengths, interests and aspirations of the autistic community. Welcome to a different brilliant. Thank you for listening to A Different Brilliant. I'm your host, Orion Kelly, and I'm autistic. A Different Brilliant is an aspect podcast made for autistic adults and parents or carers of kids on the autism spectrum. My purpose is to inspire, inform, and entertain you through focusing on the strengths, interests, and aspirations of the autistic community. And if you're not autistic but are open to learning more, well, you've come to the right place. Open, open, open. open, honest, and engaging conversations on autism. A different brilliant with Orion Kelly. To learn more, catch up on the episodes, or send us a message. Like the Aspect page on Facebook, or visit autismspectrum.org.au. On this episode, we're exploring the topic of autism myths, and my guest, Emma Gallagher, she's an autistic woman, but I tell you, I must take a deep breath to say everything else that she is. <laughs> Emma Gallagher is a research assistant at Aspect Research Centre for Autism Practice and a project leader for the Autism Friendly Australia Project. Emma, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. I'm really looking forward to this episode of the podcast because this is like my daily life myths. And I promise you, Emma, if one more person tells me that, geez, I, I seem to be growing out of autism or getting, you know, so I, I'm not going to go very well with that person. I'm so sick of hearing these types of myths. So let's, let's address them. But first, as an autistic woman, how much of an impact do you think myths and, and misconceptions around autism have on you and I guess your mental health? And, and do you find, again, on top of that, being an autistic woman, rather than autistic man, does that present even more challenges? I find myths and misconceptions are so prevalent in the world today about autism. Part of my role with Aspect is to educate businesses about how to be more autism friendly. And a big component of that is a training thing, is a training component. And I find that having an autistic person there to address a lot of these myths and the open question time at the end is really beneficial to improving outcomes for autistic people. So a lot of the, the myths and misconceptions about autism only being a young person's problem, I find that really challenging as an adult because it means I don't get the support that I need. And being an autistic woman is an extra challenge on top of that because the female archetype of autism is not very well known. It's only sort of coming into general knowledge now and is being more researched now. But I commonly get that you make eye contact, you can't be autistic, or you're a girl and you, your interests are normal, you can't be autistic. And a lot of that just has an impact on how I view myself and how I'm able to deal with the day. And it puts a lot of pressure on just getting through the day in general. And from my point of view, knowing how hard life can be, just talking on myself, how hard life can be on a day-to-day basis uh, as an autistic person to make normal people, neurotypical people feel comfortable, it's forever draining. And I, I, I really feel 
such empathy for you know girls and women who number one fail to get diagnosed through different types of barriers and number two when they are diagnosed it's almost like they every day they have to explain or justify it to people who just don't think it exists so I'm I really hope we can do better in this avenue and we've done some podcasts uh, prior to this episode on women and girls on the spectrum and if you haven't heard them I encourage you to go and check them out now Emma I want to break down some of the big myths and misconceptions around autism with you. So let's start with the belief that high functioning and low functioning, which I know we really don't use anymore, it means only some autistic people require support and care. And those with high functioning autism, I'm, I guess, in that basket, that they just have what we call a light form of autism. I hear this all the time. Is this a myth? And please, what's the truth about the autism spectrum? Ah, my favourite topic, functioning <laughs> labels. Um, so I, into the neurotypical population, fit within that high functioning bracket. I'll often say when I'm presenting in training, um, I am the most neurotypical appearing autistic you will meet until I'm not. And then I'm probably the most autistic appearing person you'll ever meet. <laughs> so what I find is that I fight every day to try and get the supports that I need in the workplace, out in public. I get judged for using coping strategies such as stim toys on public transport. It's really challenging being somebody who doesn't appear to have a disability or has a hidden disability in an environment that doesn't understand that that appearance is because of lots and lots of years of practice and lots and lots of years of having to make myself appear non-autistic to fit in with the world. And that is so exhausting. I often find myself coming home at night and not being able to then do home care and self-care tasks like looking after the house or cooking a meal because I've spent all of my brain power trying to interact with a world that's not built for me. And being high functioning, people often forget that I'm autistic. And I get told this a lot and I have been by previous employers. It's like, oh, we, we forget that you're autistic because you don't look it. How is an autistic person supposed to look? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I totally relate to that, but please keep going. One of the biggest myths is that, especially with the NDIS and all of the debacle about only people with a, a 3-3 or a 2-3 rating for severity getting support, it's a long and hard battle for those of us who are able to engage in the workforce with support and who are able to earn an income because that support from the NDIS doesn't come. I've been rejected three times for being too functional. And that's a challenge in itself, being 30 and still living at home. I don't really want to be living at home, but according to the NDIS, I've got my mum there to support me with the things I have challenges with. So it's like a never-ending cycle of, but I want to move out, but I can't until I have support, but I won't get support because I live at home. <laughs> yeah, I totally get that. And for those listening, you know, Emma, a great example from my point of view, I'm, I'm just like you. And so in many respects, it's like, well, then don't bother, don't bother coming to us. You're fine. And I think a great example is my own five-year-old son who he's autistic and he got a one-two rating. The NDIS said, if you get a one-two rating, we just merge it all into a one rating. And therefore, mm-hmm. and therefore, every 12 months, we've basically got to get reports to prove to them that he needs more support, where if he was, as you say, just plain two or just plain three, it'd be approved for the rest of his life. So this is exactly what, what you're saying. This is a myth that, that I really think we've got a long way to go, haven't we? Well, to, to, the idea that we can just put my son's challenges aside 
because something wasn't as bad as the others is really frustrating in 2020 and a young boy who has his life ahead of him. So I think this is one of the most important myths doing away with these types of ratings, isn't it? Yeah, and one more thing I regularly use at training is a visual that I use that says high functioning equals doesn't need support and low functioning equals no expectations because putting a label on people and their functioning often changes the perception of the people around them. So being a so-called high-functioning woman, I don't need support until I do. And that's the challenge is no autistic person is ever high-functioning all of the time, is ever low-functioning all of the time. We change on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis depending on our environment, on what's going on in our lives, on what's going on around us and social and interpersonal issues. And I'm not always high functioning. At the end of last year, I was barely functioning because of a lot of things that were happening in my life. But because I'm usually high functioning, support wasn't offered or given and I had to fight for that. I completely understand what you're saying. And I think for those listening, it's really important to hear this. And I'm exactly the same. No one would ever think I'm autistic until I am. And unfortunately, you know, like you say, workplaces can forget it. And then you will have moments where they just think, oh, you're just reacting badly or overdramatic or, you you know, not good working with other people. And it's, no, no, I'm just being autistic. You You just haven't seen me in other situations because of one reason or another. So it's a really critical thing we've got to keep talking about in the community. And I think you and I know autistic people, uh, are not alike. You know, once you've met one person on the spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum. But there's a myth that we're all cold, we don't experience emotions, and we lack empathy, something I'm (laughs) completely bamboozled by this. It, It seems ridiculous to me. But anyway, let's talk through it. Is this a myth? And what's the truth about emotions for autistic people? Major, major myth. A lot of the autistic people I know, myself included, actually have a high level of empathy to the point where we take on the emotions of those around us. But because of the different way in which we express emotions and not necessarily through facial expression or body language, people don't know that we're feeling other people's pain, that we're sharing other people's joy. Yes, And that's where a lot of this myth comes from of autistic people lack empathy. We don't. We feel it. We just don't show it the way that the rest of the world expects. Absolutely. I find this so challenging because I'm a highly empathetic person and I take on the emotions of everybody around me. And when my own emotions are sitting at that hundred level close to meltdown, taking on the emotions of somebody else causes a meltdown, but then they think it's, oh, it's something to do with me when it's actually, no, I just had too many highly emotional people around me and I can't deal with this right now. Absolutely. That's exactly my experience as well. We, I take on everyone's emotions and I feel things much deeper than I, I, th- I think other people must be feeling them and things get to me. I totally understand what you're saying. And I don't think, I, I don't think there could be anything further from the truth when it comes to myths. And, and, and I'm, I'm glad you've talked through that because a lot of people listening may not understand that it's our own challenges and the way our brain is wired that shows the world in different ways. So inside of us, we've taken on literally everything that's just happened, except when you look at us, people, as I've just said, might go, well, geez, you always look so blank and cold. But inside, we're feeling an emotion on a level that some people might not ever feel it. And as you say, put that on top of everything else. And that's why the day can be really so draining. So I guess it's, do you find it's different being an autistic woman? And for example, I might get away with being a bit more cold and emotionless because I'm a man, I'm an Aussie bloke, but is it, is it even harder 
for you as an, as an autistic woman? Very much so. So part of the female archetype of autism is that one of the signs of a female auti is actually being a highly emotional person. So it's one of the signs that people do look out for in the female archetype. And I know for me personally, and I don't know if this is for other autistic women or just me, the way I experience emotions and understand emotions is different to the neurotypical population. My emotions are either zero or a hundred. There's nothing in between. None of this, I'm a little bit happy or I'm a little bit angry. It's either nothing or volcano. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's right. I agree with that. (laughs) So that's my experience of emotion. So as these emotions build up, you won't be able to tell. But as soon as I get to experiencing an emotion myself, you will know and it will be quite visible and quite vocal. And people find that really shocking because they the neurotypical world seems to understand that there's subtle signs that show that you're building up to being angry. I don't build up. It's just neutral, neutral, neutral. Oh my God. (laughs) And yeah, so that's an interesting challenge. And I think that also lends to the myth of autistic people being unfeeling and not empathetic is that we don't have necessarily those outward signs that people look for, for a buildup of emotions until we hit that point. Yes. Again, for those listening, whether they're neurotypical or autistic, this is a great conversation to to listen to and maybe continue it with the people around you. Because as you're saying, Emma, people don't realise, when if they just think it's cold, calculated, blank, whatever, they don't realise that when we do experience all the emotions they experience, as you say, it's only really at, one, at a particular level. It's a real level, and therefore we really experience them at a at a heightened level all the time and can go from one to the other I don't know about you growing up but for me as a you know as a young boy I was undiagnosed I think as almost like a running joke my family used to used to call me the Hulk you know because one one minute I'd be normal next minute you know I'd turn green and rip my shirt whatever you know so my and looking back I was just a, a little boy who was feeling emotions that they didn't know at a much higher level than them so it really does provide challenges not only for adults, but isn't it tough on on children who already, you know, as no, even neurotypical kids struggle to understand their emotions and are still building. So it, it must be just such a challenging thing for kids and especially, you know, girls with the idea of how their emotions are seen by the, the community. Very much so. And also my other job is being a, a teacher in a preschool. And a lot of work I do with staff around autistic kids in the environment is that that tantrum, what they call a tantrum, which is actually an overload or a meltdown, is not them trying to be naughty. It's not them trying to get your attention. This is a child who is struggling with such big levels of emotions and they don't even know how to label it yet. They don't even know what it is. They just know that they feel this big thing and they need to get it out. So a lot of my education work in the education sector is teaching people that behavior is the only form of communication some of these kids have and to remember that and to look behind that and find out what could have led up to this buildup of emotion that's come exploding out. Which is absolutely critical information please, if you can send this on to a teacher or an educator and they can listen to it, it would be amazing. You're right. When my five-year-old son ever says, you know, I'm bored, daddy, I think, I don't believe he's bored. I think he might be stressed, tired, anxious. He might want to do something else. He might be nervous. You know, you've got to look behind when they say certain things for what they're actually trying to convey. And it's much harder for kids, as you say, uh, than adults. And I think the emotional side of this myth is extraordinary and I hope this conversation 
can help people understand it and please share it with people that need to hear it. Now, autistic people, here's a myth for you. We only have deficits compared to neurotypical people and we are intellectually disabled. Is this a myth and what's the truth? I have to laugh at that one. Yes. Um, There is intellectual disability within the autistic community, but not all of us are intellectually disabled. I'm actually two IQ points off being admitted to Mensa. So that's a myth. The whole idea behind autistic people only having deficits compared to the neurotypical world comes from the previous and historical way that autism has been viewed. Autism has been viewed in a medicalized model. So if you look at the DSM-5, it's all the things that autistic people can't do as compared to the neurotypical population. So this ideology has spread out into the world and people view autistics by their deficits. In the last five to 10 years, the autistic community has pushed back, pushing for a more social model of autism, which looks at the environment and the barriers that create the disability, as opposed to the disability being inherent in the person with autism. And a lot of what I do in training organisations to be autism friendly is getting them to look around their environment and look at things that are barriers to access or barriers to inclusion so that the focus shifts from the problem being the autistic person to the problem being the world that's not built for us, the world that doesn't understand us and doesn't know how to interact with us. Definitely. And for those that are interested in going deeper into the models that Emma's talking about, episode one of this podcast with Tom Tutton talks literally about the strengths and interest model. We talked about all the models and discussed it in depth. So have a look at it. Well, you know, when I say look, you can't really look at a podcast. You can look at it playing. Really, you want to listen to it. That's the best idea. So stick it in your ears with Tom Tutton. That's episode one. It is really interesting because, as you say, even an IQ test you take, it, was that a neurotypical IQ test or was that an IQ test for autistic people? You were two points off. You were probably 10 points over. I mean, who, you know, so it's it just shows the world that we we live in. And as I said at the very start of the podcast, Emma, I hear this a lot. Autism can be outgrown. You know what? Don't worry, because when you get older, you'll outgrow it. Or it can be cured. Now, <laughs> let's talk about this myth. Oh, goodness. Yeah, the outgrown and cured myth. A lot of people think that autism can be outgrown because they see autistic adults like me out in public, out in the public eye, successfully doing neurotypical expected things. The problem is the mental strain that goes into me being able to appear like that is exhausting and I have to do that daily. So what I use as an example is I have this massive IQ and I dedicate about half of my brain at any given moment to manually processing what people are saying to make sure I put the right facial expression on my face or use the right body language or understand that when they say pull their socks up, they don't literally mean pull their socks up. It means go faster. (laughs) Weird neurotypical language. Anyway, so to a lot of people, I don't, again, look autistic, but that's because there is a lot of mental energy and mental work going on to look like that. For people who don't have that ability or just don't really feel like doing that, because honestly, if I could, I wouldn't do that. It's not cured. It's just hidden. Autistic people become great actors because we spend our lives trying to pretend to be neurotypical to fit into this world. And I can't agree with you more. Hey, I went to acting school, for goodness sake. So obviously I got pretty good at it after after a while. And it's, it's interesting Emma, because, you know, I can relate, you know, being an autistic guy, I can completely relate to what you're saying, which is, and sometimes I feel, I don't know if I feel guilty about about whinging about it to, to people, but 
the idea that you said, that's my life too, an entire day, day after day after day after day, moulding and merging and making myself as normal as possible just to appease and comfort neurotypical people, not being able to really be myself because that, again, that would be confrontational potentially or not comforting to them or I'd just be different and therefore my life is never really being myself or small pockets and, of course, I'm always mentally exhausted. I'm glad you shared that of, of your own of your own experience because I think people listening can relate to it and know that they're, they're not alone because I'm with you, Emma. It's, it's draining, isn't it? It's just draining. It is. And autism's become the new everything causes cancer. So everything <laughs> apparently causes autism and weird and wonderful things can apparently cure it, like the bleach enema craze of a little while ago. <laughs> Because apparently autism is caused by gut bacteria being a condition that is neurological and doesn't have like a blood test that you can just blood test and go, yes, you definitely have autism. People constantly think it can be cured. And a lot of the cures are very, supposed cures are very damaging to autistic people, to our mental health and to our physical health. Keeping this mask up and pretending to be neurotypical day in and day out is exhaustion and leads to burnout. And I will find that towards the end of every year, I become barely functional because I've been working so hard for Mm. so long to just fit into the world that I crash and burn and can have mental health problems. I get depression, I get anxiety, all because of having to keep this mask up just to be able to interact in the world. And thank you so much for being so open and honest because I think it's great for people listening. It's completely um, crucial that people hear the truth. I'm, I'm with you, Emma. You know, I could work in a normal workplace in my 20s and every time I take a break over Christmas, I'd be tired and I'd just get sick. You know, I wonder why I get sick every every time I have a holiday. It's probably because every time I have a holiday, I could be myself again and I'm so run down. So it, it's really true. Now, one last one before we wrap this up. The best form of intervention for autistic children is ongoing treatment and services to make them indistinguishable from their neurotypical peers. This is a a big one for me. It's a real button pusher for me with my son. Anyway, let's talk about this, making autistic kids neurotypical kids. Is this a myth? And what's the truth about this whole idea? Massive myth. And it relates to the last point we were talking about. You're not making them indistinguishable from their peers. You're just adding a bucket load of mental load to their life. Yes. So I've been through many, many therapies. I didn't get diagnosed till I was 15 and I was put through a lot of therapy to try and make myself indistinguishable. It's been advantageous in being able to gain work, but it's been very disadvantageous to my mental health. And it's gotten to a point where up until a couple of years ago, I couldn't turn it off. So I couldn't take down the mask. I couldn't remove things. And I would feel guilty about doing things that are naturally autistic, like stimming, like enjoying things that are not seen to be age appropriate for me, like My Little Pony or video games. And it's really exhausting. And having to keep the mask up is just so harmful because it hides wonderful autistic strengths and wonderful autistic traits from the wider world. It really is an important conversation to have because in the end, maybe this is an overstatement, but really at the moment, it seems like the entire early intervention program is really just designed to try and teach the kids to act normal. To, to be yeah, normal. and that's what it is. Mm. It's acting. 
Yeah. So it's an acting class. We're basically we're going through months and months of meetings to get funding to do acting classes, in effect. Jeez, I tell you what, Emma, seriously, I legitimately could talk to you all day. You're absolutely fascinating. I hope we can talk again on a future podcast. Promise me we, we can, okay? It's been, so, it's been so much fun. I hope you've enjoyed it too. I have. I love talking about autism because I feel like so many people just need to hear this information and it gets people thinking and that improves outcomes for autistic people in the wider world. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really enjoyed this chat. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Emma. You're welcome. My guest was Research Assistant at Aspect Research Centre for Autism Practice, Project Leader for the Autism Friendly Australia Project and Autistic Woman, Emma Gallagher. A different brilliant with Orion Kelly. No two autistic people are the same. An aspect podcast focusing on the strengths, interests and aspirations of the autistic community. And thank you so much for listening to A Different Brilliant. I really do appreciate it and I hope this episode has inspired, informed and entertained you. And if the episode has resonated with you, please share it with your family and friends so we can reach more people. And if you'd like to continue the conversation, just like the Aspect page on Facebook or visit autismspectrum.org.au. You're also welcome to send me a message if you want via my website, orionkelly.com.au. A Different Brilliant is an Aspect podcast focusing on the strengths, interests and aspirations of the autistic community. Executive producers are Lisa Cassidy and Dr. Tom Tutton. I'm Orion Kelly. And I look forward to celebrating the neurodiversity of autistic people and providing a voice to the autistic community on the next episode of A Different Brilliant. Thanks for listening to A Different Brilliant with Orion Kelly, an aspect podcast on the strengths, interests and aspirations of the autistic community. Our door is open anytime. So like the aspect page on Facebook or visit autismspectrum.org.au. My aim, make the world a better place for autistic people.